Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And this week, we're talking about uh, our book club book of the month, Astonishing X-Men. Excelsior. So this month, we have something a little bit special. We talked when we first rebooted the Make Mine Multiversity podcast, renumbered, did all of that good, fun, juicy Marvel stuff that we would be having guests come on, uh, specifically for the book clubs, every so often once we kind of settled into a rhythm. And this week is the first time. So welcome, Joe. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Perfect. Yeah. Glad to have you here. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do? What do you like to do? Pronouns? Whatever you want. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um. So I am, uh, my name is Joe. Um, Joe Scott, I am a, uh, I do a lot of different things. I am a, uh, a museum educator. Um, so I, I sort of studied history in school and things like that. Um, but I also, uh, write for, uh, Multiversity Comics. I do some TV review stuff and I do comic reviews and things like that. Um, and then in, in general as well, you know, I, outside of things i read a lot of fantasy stuff like that and i also uh play you know lots of games like dungeons and dragons and board games and things like that um and yeah uh i i'm i'm happy to be here and, and talk to you guys about um i think one of the first full runs of comics i ever read yeah i was gonna oh, ask wow. about that because um so I usually tell people when I have to explain my relationship with Joe, I say that he was my college roommate, which strictly speaking isn't true. Um, <laughs> yeah. We uh, we lived in a house during college and we had our own rooms, but he was my housemate for much of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, so I really didn't start reading comics until I was in college. Uh, and I think part of it was that like I was a kid who had, uh, or I was a person, I, I still am, who kind of has like this completionist thing. And so for me, like there was always something so daunting about comics where it was like picking up issue 600 of a comic or whatever felt like picking up like the third, you know, book in like A Song of Ice and Fire and just like sk like skipping to chapter six. Right. And so like yeah. it was always one of these things where I was like, how can I possibly start a, a comic series after it's been around for so long. And then, uh, yeah, Jake and I um, started, uh, like, hanging out uh, when we were in college. And he was the one who really started, like, giving me different comics that he thought I would like to read. And so um, this one was kind of early on in things where I hadn't read a lot of comics in general. But X-Men was always something that, uh, you know, I was, I was aware of the cartoons and the movies and things like that. And he was like, you should read Astonishing X-Men. Um, but lots of other things as well. That was the time where I was trying to uh, read things like uh, I was really interested in the incredible Th or in the mighty Thor rather, because like I always thought it was kind of hilarious that his superpower was that he was a god, <laughs> which right. It was, it was like, uh, especially my friend had um, that, that video game for the Wii, like the ultimate Alliance or whatever. It was called, and we were just both so amused that it was like a guy with an, uh, like, you know, like Iron Man and and Captain America and a god who exists in mythology. So um, that was something early on I wanted to read as well, but but uh, this came highly um, recommended. And so I, I read it, and um, yeah, that, that was kind of the first time I had really did a deep dive into comics. Although recently I discovered uh, something from my youth. I had 
an uncanny X-Force uh, pillowcase that I thought was so cool and it was so 90s. Like, an X-Force pillowcase? Like, who was on it? Uh, uh, people with lots of pouches and lots <laughs> of spikes. So Blood Gun, Gun Blood, Pouch Man. Pouch Man, uh, Man Pouch. The, Ooh, uh, <laughs> collector's item. Yeah, uh, so I, I thought it was kind of funny that it was one of those things where I just felt like it was something I should have always been into, but the other part of me where it was like, how how could you start reading a thing so late? Always kind of, you know, uh, kept me off of comics for a while until uh, Jake just started kind of giving me comics. He was like, read this. And I was like, okay, read this one. I was like, <laughs> fine. Um, and then kind of going from there. So That also, that makes sense because, um, so the book we're talking about today is Astonishing X-Men. That's a book that was written by Joss Whedon illustrated by John Cassidy, colored by Laura Martin, and lettered by Chris Eliopoulos. And an interesting thing about this book is, though it started in July of 2004, it actually, the last issue, uh, there's about 25 issues in the run, didn't come out until July of 2008. And um, yeah, for those who are doing the math at home, comics usually come out one issue a month, which means that uh, 25 issues should be a little more than two years. But this was exactly four years because uh, the original run was very delayed. And I thought of this because um, July of 2008 would have been the first year that Joe and I were living together uh, in college that year, if I'm yeah. correct. Yeah, uh, that, that, was, that was when we met and, and started hanging out and things like that. Um, yeah, that was my freshman year of college, which is a weird bout. But... Yeah, but so um, I, I'm holding right now my hardcovers of these comics, which I bought uh, right when they were collected, the first hardcovers they made of this. And um, I believe those are the copies that you read, Joe, about 10 years ago now. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, but Elias, you had never read this, right? No, I had never read this. Uh, I didn't even know that Joss Whedon had written anything more than two issues of comics in a row. Uh, I know he oversaw all the Buffy stuff, but I don't think he wrote most of them. Yeah, he wrote very little of it, and most of the stuff he was involved with wasn't very good, and most of the good Buffy comics before last year were written by Christos Gage, and those are the only worthwhile ones, in my opinion. Wow. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, Christos Gage's run on Buffy is great, and everything else is fine. <laughs> now, Elias, you are right now very into uh, X-Men, the uh, Hickman era of X-Men. I am. I love all the soap opera, you know, bullshit, but I also <laughs> hate all the soap opera bullshit. So, <laughs> but so Hickman's the first time you've really been following X Men or reading any run in any major way, right? So this would have been your yeah. this Whedon run would have been like your second big run of X Men ever. Correct. Is that, yeah, that's yeah, correct. Yeah. For Joe, it's been um. I read this comic pretty regularly. Actually, this is one of the most featured comics in my regular rotation. Joe read this once ten years ago, and it was kind of one of his major introductions to superhero comics. And you're reading this now for the first time as someone who only knows X-Men from the contemporary 2020 stuff. So I guess my first question is, um, is Joss Whedon and John Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men like a good place to get into X-Men for people? Surprisingly, yes. It definitely, it's a launching point that if you knew nothing about X-Men, this is a really good self-contained run. But at the same time, I think if you know nothing about X-Men, it will really, really hurt. Like, it, you, you'll... Like, when I read this, and we'll kind of get into it, but the death uh, and destruction of Genosha, which was a basically a mutant country that had happened, and, and millions and millions and millions of mutants were killed, happened, like, uh, I want to say, the issue before the first issue launched. And I didn't know this. I didn't know that it was following right on the heels of that tragedy, which I think capped off the Grant Morrison Frank Quietly run. That actually opens the, Frank uh, the Grant Morrison Frank Quietly run. 
the destruction of Genosha? Yeah, that's the third issue of their run. Yeah. What? So this was running contemporaneously to that? Well, it starts contemporaneously, but then Grant Morrison finishes his run, and this is still going because of all the aforementioned delays. Jesus Christ. I thought this came out afterwards. Okay. Well, so it came, it came out, uh, <laughs> this came out soon after that. I Well, um, this, no, this comes out after the run is concluded because the very first moments of Cyclops and Emma picks up directly from where they end in the Morrison run. So if you read the entire Grant Morrison run from, uh, I don't have the issues in front of me, but it's called New X-Men, and the numbering's very high, from their first issue to their last issue. Um, and then the next thing you read is Astonishing X-Men. That will feel like it's in sequence. That will feel like the new season of it. But this was published with like, at the same time as the third issue of his new new. No, that, that can't be. The, I must have been mistaken about that. Um, we'll figure this out, everyone. We'll figure it out eventually. But in the meantime... New X-Men ran from 2001 to 2004. Okay, so this did this did come out right after. Um, the last issue of New X Men came out in March of two thousand four, and the first issue of this issue of Whedon's came out in July of two thousand four, so a few months later. Well, clearly, I know <laughs> a lot and also absolutely nothing about X Men. Well, just enough to be very indication. confused. <laughs> <laughs> the X, I feel like that's the X Men way, really. <laughs> like... Well, one thing you said, Elias, that kind of interested me is you said. Um, that you were surprised at how good a jumping on point is that. And I wanted you to hear you qualify that a little bit. Well, I, I was surprised because when I first, when, when you first suggested this, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to be kind of confused for much of this. But Joss Whedon lays the groundwork in the first issue to be like, here's the status quo. And if you know nothing about anyone else, you set, you get all the relationships. Um, everyone hates each other, but you get all the relationships <laughs> to, to, you know, one another you're introduced to the central five uh the main cast and you don't really need to know anything else you don't need to know where charles charles xavier is uh even if you're like where's the bald dude uh you don't need to know any of the background stuff you don't need to know about genosha until later other than to know that it's a fraught tension between these characters uh you don't need to know emma used to be evil maybe still is and all that they covered that, yeah. I mean, they covered yeah. that at length within the story. And there's a brand new villain, uh, are, and a couple of different threads that they can pull on and follow. And the central tension of at least the opening act is there is now a quote unquote cure to mutantness, and we're going to see what happens from there. And it doesn't matter about anything else. You don't need to know any superheroics. You don't need to know, even know what's going on outside of the X Men universe. Although some of the other superhero characters. Uh, make appearances but uh before we get into the plot joe i wanted to ask you as well how did you find this as a uh as like a jumping on point because this was pretty much your introduction to marvel i think yeah this was kind of up there in my introduction to marvel um it's interesting i read this and then um at least at that time when you were like recommending comics to people you were kind of recommending also that people check out aspects of the ultimates universe um, just as sort of like they these were like introductions to characters and then once you got kind of comfortable with the ultimates then you would start recommending 616 stuff to people um, and so I think that I, I I agree that I think it's a pretty good jumping on point just because it's a it's a really solid team with uh, really like interesting kind of uh, diverse opinions of like how the X-Men should work and what the X-Men should be um, looking at it now uh, it, it's, I, I kind of appreciate in a way 
just how small scale the team is, if that makes sense, where it's like, you know, you're really focusing with these five characters. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading it is, and this is, you know, not necessarily the truth anymore with X-Men, but I feel like I always associated X-Men with my understanding of it as like kind of a quote unquote school book where it's Charles Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. And like you would have the main missions, but they'd always come back to school at the end of the day. And the different X-Men were like different professors. And there's aspects of that in this book, but it also sometimes feels like the school element is more something that felt like it had to have instead of something that like i feel whedon was like super interested in exploring in any major way if that makes sense like yeah you have your you have your ex students and um a couple of them are given names and a couple of them have like kind of you know fun little conversations in the hallway but like there were moments where i was like i wish we got to know a couple more of these like mutant kids or like see what a you know like see what kitty's class looks like or see what hank's class looks like um whereas it's sort of just like you know we're off doing our fun x-men missions and then we come back and there's some kids here and then we fight in the corridor for like 20 minutes and blow up the school and then the school heals itself and then um okay we're not at school anymore bye school's done (laughs) so um but yeah i mean I, i think that the the idea to focus on that core team you had a couple of names that people recognized you had a couple names that might not have been quite as familiar for some x-men or for some for some comic fans but it kind of gave you an idea of some some butting of heads of like what it means to like be an x-men for instance or things along those lines so um yeah uh i was also kind of surprised to or not surprised necessarily but i I think it's interesting that you don't necessarily have a whole lot of especially in that early part a whole lot of like x specific villains um but like you have this new villain so he was pretty cool and and more the idea that like the tension is what does it mean to be a mutant in this world versus like there's some evil mutants over there that are making the rest of us look bad so we have to go and beat them up it was more of like an ideological struggle of like what does it even mean to like be a mutant in this world so yeah yeah that's how um that's how it starts but i guess before we get a before we uh, go into the plot, because there's a lot of it, we read a lot of issues for this one, guys. Um, yeah. Elias, we want to talk a little bit about the creators. Yeah, so we should probably uh, address the elephant in the room, and that is Joss Whedon. So, uh, uh, yeah, uh, for a number Joss, of reasons. Yeah, the living elephant. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the elephant there's, that walks like a man. Yeah, the the first, I guess, elephant with him is his reputation as a writer, and then his reputation as, and not as a writer, but as a person. Uh, it's currently ongoing uh, allegations uh, from the set of Justice League against his treatment of actors and whatnot. Well, so the Joss Whedon, yeah, because Joss Whedon's really interesting because he starts off um, in the '90s. His big breakout hit is Buffy. Although he writes, um, he wrote. The, uh, the script to Toy Story. He wrote the script to the uh, Ace version of the script to the first X Men movie to uh, Aliens Three. Like uh, he's a script guy. He's written movies and stuff. But mm-hmm. then he does Buffy, and Buffy's kind of a cult classic that a lot of people or some people like a lot, but a lot of people don't know about at all. And I'm not gonna. This is an exhaustive look at his career. He does Firefly in there. He does the spinoff Angel. Mm-hmm. And around that time is when he writes this X Men comic. 
uh, it's only it's but it's years later in 2012 that he becomes the biggest filmmaker in the world for like a hot minute because he makes the Avengers movie, which was the biggest movie ever when it came yeah, out. That was huge. Yeah, and we, I remember we tend like to forget that. Yeah, I, and I remember even um, being in my kitchen with Joe in college when I found out, and uh, I saw you know somewhere online that Joss Whedon's going to be uh, directing the Avengers movie, and I remember that was the coolest news in the world because that felt like such a risky pick because so many yeah. of the shows had been canceled or were like un, uh, unknown kind of in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whedon felt like a, a cool, but. Um, but even then, I do remember he- hearing rumblings of things, and I think I was younger in college, and I didn't know how to reconcile uh, when people who make art you like do bad things. But there, there were rumors of uh, him being doing creepy stuff on set, or of being like uh, really intense, or doing the kinds of bullshit stuff you hear directors doing, like um, yelling or scaring at actors to provoke an emotional reaction, and doing like real sketchy, non-consensual uh, manipulation instead of just like acting the asking the actor to act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he like always seemed like he was a little bit too into that sort of thing, but the Avengers comes out. It's the biggest thing in the world. Then he makes the Avengers two, and um, that movie has a depending. I know some people who will stand by it and think it's one of the more interesting Marvel movies, and I know a lot of people who think it's crap. Um, I, I would think it's crap. I um yeah, it's not one of my favorites. I'm I'm somewhere in the middle, but yeah, it's it's uh I tried rewatching it recently, and it, there are parts that feel very long. Like yeah. And notably, a, there's just one person who's a big uh, detractor of that movie who's not a fan at all is Joss Whedon, who's like really denounced and or renounced. He's really said, washed his hands of that movie, and he says he blamed uh, the studios a lot. And at the time, I remember that being like a really bad look. Um, uh, and uh, that wasn't the first time he had done something like that when a project he was involved with went wrong, and then um, he quickly wrote it off as uh, some sort of outside influence that he was not responsible for. Just, uh, that seems to happen to him a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're picking up what y- I'm putting down. Y- yeah. Um, and then since he left the Avengers movie, um, it was a lot of nothing for a while. He was rumored to be part of a bunch of different projects that never panned out until he, um, due to the tragedy with the family of Zack Snyder, um, he abruptly takes over the Justice League movie. And I remember thinking that was crazy because at this point, there's a bunch of allegations of Joss Whedon um, making moves on uh, young women who worked for him and uh, yeah. – uh, and it was a lot clearer than I think. I think there was uh, always rumors, but now there's a, a lot of it, it, you can't avoid it when you're hearing about him. And it was at that time that he got hired to take over Justice League, which was in a fraught position. And sure enough, um, Elias, maybe you know a little bit more than me, but I know that uh, Ray Fisher, who plays Cyborg in those movies, has said that Whedon was a bully and a tyrant on set and uh, not a nice guy to work with. Yeah, that that's about the long and short of it, and that's about as much as I know. I haven't done a deep dive into the comments beyond you know the articles written about the the statements and and the ongoing just complete i'm wb is a mess yeah to put it's to put it lightly sure tip the tail that company is in a bad state i don't think i really brought it up in uh the when we talked about bullet points and j michael straczynski but warner brothers owns the rights to babylon 5 because of their p10 network the execs at the top are, you know, they're execs. The, most of the Hollywood studio system has a problem like this. Uh, and they're doing currently doing an internal investigation into, you know, the allegations. And the big 
takeaway from that is they said that they tried to talk to Ray and were unable to, and so they didn't get a comment from him. And Ray, as soon as that broke, was like, they never even approached me. (laughs) So take your sham court and I will see you in litigation. Um, Yeah. I don't know if he actually is taking them to court, to be fair. Um, the, the cooler Ray Fisher, though. Yeah, point being that um, at best, Joss Whedon seems to be a pretty nasty person to work with, a big diva who um, is really quick to celebrate his successes and to uh, run away from his failures and not take responsibility over them. And at worst, it seems like yeah. he uh, exercises his power over uh, vulnerable people in his employ to um, bully and take advantage of them in creepy ways. Um, He's also got a really weird thing about women in the things he writes— I'm glad Which is that's strange I was you. Yeah. Because of Buffy. But I guess if you rewatch it through a certain lens, you might be able to see it. I have not. But it's absolutely yeah. there if you're looking for it. Yeah. There was that I... whole thing with his Wonder Woman script. Uh, and that, I think, is where it first crossed my radar. Sure. I think a lot of the ways that Whedon writes women, the, the, one of the reasons why it's hard to, um, was hard to nail it down for so long is because taken in a vacuum, each individual example. Um, doesn't necessarily seem so objectionable, but in the context of like his greater body of work, there seems to be a lot of character types and relationships and types of jokes that he uh, seems really fond of, and yeah. um, and in the pattern, and he, he's been so influential on the culture that a lot of there's a lot of Whedon ripoffs out there. So like his predilection for wayfish young skinny women barefoot with huge uh, combat boots on with no socks who are like uh, ninjas, but they have like a, a problem that makes them unable to talk or they have some sort of uh, trauma that causes them to like lash out, but like in a sexy way, right? I, I was re- yeah, I was reading a thing about um like the uh, cabin in the woods um and it was something I was thinking about specifically with the way that they wrote Emma in uh this this uh in like the relationship between like Emma and Kitty specifically where you know uh the it was it was something along the lines of the um the character who dyes her hair blonde I'm f- I don't know the character names in Cabin in the Woods even though I watch it where it's like you know just the jokes said or the way that they framed like that character and. Um, but it's all kind of tongue in cheek because it's kind of making fun of the tropes of horror movies. But at the same time, there feels like there was a certain level of like nastiness to it. And there's sometimes jokes at the way that like Emma dresses, for instance, or um, things along those lines, like some of the, the sexuality of Emma um, that I was thinking about as I read through it this time. So mm-hmm. Elias was texting me with noticing stuff like that as he was going. Yeah. Yeah. And there it's I guess it's jokes at the expense of her sexuality versus yeah. or, or her the the I guess not sexuality but of just sex in general. Um mm. because because it, it's not what like because sexuality the, the I'm trying to find the right term cuz when I hear sexuality I think yeah. sexual think... orientation and not uh her, presence her... of and her presentation and uh, promiscuity, perhaps. Uh, maybe, go. yeah. Mm, but a lot of yeah. it was was at the expense of her being sexually active versus yes, and just and that was the whole joke, yeah, right? Uh, yeah. There's like a BDSM joke at one point that just like just came so far out of left field. I was like, whoa, where where did that even come from? Um, I mean, I could. Uh, yes, th- th- I, I know i know now but yeah it it came from a place but i was gonna say there's also i feel like there's always a tone that w- when you see the greater pattern um 
in like Whedon's body of work, it's really obvious. With like, um, there's a joke in the first Avengers movie, which is like a kid-friendly, light, fun action movie, where uh, Loki uses uh, an archaic, sexist term for Black Widow, and for, it's like, and the Whedon smugness is like coming out, coming through in the script. Oh, I- I remember like reading things about how excited he was that he was able to like get that into the film, you know? Right, like, like he, was... he, he, I did it, Disney, like. Right, exactly, and yeah, and and um, at the time when I was a college kid and that movie came out, I think I probably laughed along with that joke, but I, uh, I just like with with some distance and. Uh, learning more about uh, the kind of guy he is, that stuff does hit a little differently. But all that being said, I, having just reread Astonishing X-Men, I, I think he's, like, a very often a good writer, and uh, the unfortunate, like, uh, his gross personal life detracts from that a bunch. Um, like, a, yeah. like, like Buffy is such an important part of the culture still, and I'm thrilled that there is a woman writing a Buffy comic right now, a cool woman writing... A cool comic that everyone should check out if you're not reading the Buffy comics by um, Jordi Belair and Dan Mora. I, I fell off with the crossover because Boom Studios, please stop. Please, please just give us one or two titles. <laughs> yeah, allow me to echo that sentiment, Elias. I I was covering, I was doing a column about that for months and that really confused me. And I was supposed to be, and I'm like the professional who's supposed to keep track of that stuff. And I, did, and I resented it <laughs> that they were doing that to me. But the comic is good. Jordi's work is good. Uh, yeah, Buffy's such an important part of the culture that um, I found myself revisiting Buffy, and I like a lot of it. But that, all that being said, I think Astonishing X-Men is the best thing Whedon has ever written. I think it's the best writing he ever did. It's probably the I, most writing he's ever did. Probably. I, I, I don't know. He's probably written. Because um, TV's, TV's weird because you've got the writer's rooms. That's true. Sure. Yeah. and he, uh, he Unless you're J. Michael Straczynski, and then he writes three whole fucking seasons in a row. <laughs> yeah, every word of every script. Um yeah, but I, I think that Astonishing X-Men um, is Whedon's best writing. I think it's better than Buffy, and I think it's better than the Avengers movie, which are probably the other two that would go up there. We also really, at least quickly, should talk about John Cassidy. Uh, do either of you have any sort of relationship with Cassidy? No, I have no personal re- personal reason. I don't know the man, but I don't also <laughs> don't really know his, his work. Uh, no, I did. I met him once because he's uh, at New York City at Comic-Con last year. He is one of the people redoing, overseeing the H1 imprint over at Humanoids. Uh, and I got to quickly chat with him. Got his autograph on a poster. That was very cool. But I have not read anything that he's drawn <laughs> except for this. But I do know that he wrote or he drew, I think it's the first volume of The Authority. That sounds right. He did a bunch of those Wild Snore books. He definitely yeah. did Um, Planetary is a famous run that mm, he drew. That might have been it. And he was, he's essentially one of the people who's credited at bringing and creating the widescreen format of comics making. Brian K. Vaughn being another example of a writer who really wrote for widescreen. Although Interesting. I don't know if they ever did a comic together. Uh, I don't think so, no. But so what that means is instead of having a lot of vertical pro, uh, col- columns, panels like the nine panel grid uh, and other traditional comicking tools or that that were more grid like they this uses the entire width of the page even if there are borders along the edges uh, and are usually made up of about five uh three to five you know uh, rows so that you can see a lot more of the the space creating a lot more width instead of tightness 
So it looks more like mm. a movie theater screen and less like a picture you took on your phone. Yeah. And uh, as with everything in comics, there's I, I feel like uh, that's a tool, like a storytelling tool, a widescreen approach. Mm -hmm. And a lot yeah. of people want to have like a unifying theory on whether widescreen comics are good or bad for comics. And They're just it's another like a, method. Yeah, it's just like a way of doing comics. Just like the nine panel grid is good, but when uh, certain DC editors insist on making every panel a nine or every comic a nine panel grid, uh, eventually you're going to run into some not as good comics. Yeah, about sure. hundred issues of them. What? <laughs> Cassidy is a, a prolific uh, cover artist. He's done a lot of covers. Um, yeah. But the only. Other um, and he did a run of Captain America uh, right before this X Men run. But besides that, the only time he has done he did the first four issues of Uncanny Avengers with Rick Remender, and then the only okay. other Marvel comic he did uh, consistently more than one issue of was the first six issues of Jason Aaron's Star Wars comic, which which I have read. Um, oh and, wait, no, then uh, I did read it. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, 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 that's but that's pretty much it. Is what I'm saying is Cassidy almost never does interiors. And I think his process just takes so long that the books often get delayed. And if he mm -hmm. does more than six issues, he will die. I believe. It. I, I also I also read Uncanny Avengers, and that was when uh, they were, there was a lot of apocalypse nonsense going on at that point. And for a while, it was just like, I am so sick of apocalypse <laughs> right now. He's just all over the place. And uh, now he's a, a, a big, scary sorcerer, man. So I'm into apocalypse again. <laughs> Thanks uh, to Teeny Howard. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about Cassidy other than what we'll get into as we go on. Okay, so I won't rush it then. Um, I love Cassidy, and I always feel like his work is a treat, and this is the longest run of a comic he ever did, and so that's like a, a very special thing to me. Yeah. So before yeah. we get going on that, uh, well, actually, let's talk about the last two people, the creative team, just real brief. Absolutely. Um, we got the uh, the colorist, Laura Martin. How about Laura Martin? You got any... Uh... Laura Martin often colors uh, Mike Diodato's art. She she's a big Marvel colorist. You'll see her, you'll see her name a lot there, and her process here is very very interesting. And I I want to talk about it later. And then Chris Iliopoulos, it's so weird seeing his lettering on this book because normally <laughs> I associate a lot lighter, a lot airier, a lot more like Comic Sans typeface with his lettering. He recently did the lettering on Ronan Island by Greg Pak. Good book. Oh, yeah. Milo G uh, I don't remember the name of the artist. Uh, Gina Milo Guinness, I think. And the Not artist, a Marvel uh, book, so you were forgiven. No, not a Marvel book. Uh, so, yeah. That was very interesting. He's also an artist and draws much like Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> That's the style. Yeah, I like oh. Chris Eliopoulos. Yeah. Um, okay. I like Laura Martin, too. Laura Martin, I think, mm -hmm. was very active in Marvel in this era, in the yes. like 2000 to 2010. So I have encountered her colors a lot because... Um, I just like this era of Marvel a lot. Yes, yes. We will take a quick break before we really get into the meat of these books, uh, as is our usual format. We'll probably be here for forever and a day, but we'll see you <laughs> after the break. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC3Cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince. And I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. 
We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, no bad to end video impressions, this is bad, what the f***? And an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us and welcome back guys we are talking about uh, astonishing x-men by joss whedon and john cassidy uh and now i think we're gonna get really into the meat of the story itself you guys ready as i'll let's ever be. do it is the first arc called the cure i think it's uh, just called it's called gifted it's right called gifted, gifted yeah. is what it's called the first arc is called gifted but the plot largely follows um, a mutant cure, which is going to – it's supposed to uh, cure mutants, quote-unquote, by turning them back into humans. This is a really um, alluring idea that gets used in a ton of X-Men adaptations. But unless I'm mistaken, and I like roll pretty deep with X-Men, this wasn't an idea that had been used in any significant way prior to this story. So this is kind of its origin. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's crazy to me. Yeah, it just seems so obvious, right? It's, it's the plot to the worst – X-Men movie? X-Men 3? The Last Stand? Is that the worst one? You you could probably make some arguments for other ones, but... I think I would make an argument for that one. I don't like any of the X-Men movies. <laughs> Ooh, that's a... I, I never saw Apocalypse or Dark Phoenix, but I heard Dark Phoenix is a real treat of bad movies. So... I didn't see Dark Phoenix either. I yeah, saw Apocalypse I skip, with my I, friend I Shoshi. Dark Phoenix. Uh, it's a good thing it came out. Oh, sh- shit. We're going to have to review New Mutants at some point, aren't we? What, the movie? Yeah. Uh, you mean you and I on this podcast? Yes. I don't think we're obligated to. Whatever. We can't, we can't go to theaters anyway. It's like it's out of our hands. Oh, shit. You're, well, maybe we'll do it when it comes to video on demand for not 20 bucks. The only way I would do it is if we also talked about for Book Club uh, the comic it's based on, which is a classic, like a great comic, which is Demon Bear. If we read Demon Bear, I would watch the bad movie, and then we could talk about them. The allegedly bad movie. I haven't seen it. I was so excited for that movie, and then they released it in theaters in the pandemic. So Anya Taylor-Joy as magic. That's the best casting. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're off topic. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about an old comic, though. We're talking about Astonishing X-Men, which doesn't have any of the mut- new mutants in it. Um, no. So, yeah. So, it, um, it's about... Uh, Dr. Kavita Rao has uh, come up with what she deems a cure that will revert mutants back into humans. Um, The X-Men have uh, various different feelings about this, and they come back together as a team. And um, what they discover is that Colossus, long thought dead, is the test subject for this mutant cure, and they rescue him. And I don't actually remember, at the end of the story, um, they haven't really solved any of these issues, right? Like, the cure is still out there, and it's still being administered to some people. Oh, shit, yeah. And um, They don't solve yeah. Jack. Yeah, they don't really solve... They, well, they, <laughs> well no. they they rescue yeah. Colossus, and they arrest um, the villain, Ord of Breakworld, who is an alien who was supplying Dr. Rao with the technology that her cure is made from. Are, and are you saying the end of the run or the end of this volume? Uh, just the end of the story. I wanted to take yeah. things... Uh, okay, since okay. it's so much comic, I wanted to take it uh, piece by piece. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. One, one volume at a time. Yeah. One Ord at a time. At this point, I'm, like, all in. I, I love this uh, for reasons I can get into. But just, like, uh, generally, did you guys – was did this hook you? Was this a good hook? 
Yeah, I'm. I was surprised at how much I remembered about um, the first arc of this comic because it was something I read, you know, close to a decade ago. Um, and there are just little things that stood out to me so much. Um, like I, I remember Ord showing up and being like, "Oh my gosh, I remember this this scary man from the Break World." And then the thing that I, I really liked about it was um, we had kind of mentioned this earlier, but like it really hits the ground running with the character relationships and the character dynamics um, where you have like, uh, you know, um, Scott and Logan uh, pretty much from the word go, just like fighting each other on the lawn of the school. Um, You have, uh, you know, Kitty kind of reminiscing uh, about what it was like to, you know, be one of those, those characters who kind of came up through the X-Men, you know, being a later addition, but um, just the whole, experience of coming here i i thought that this first arc was really cool as i said earlier too it's interesting just to kind of get into the philosophy or like you know just just into the idea of there's a cure and how how do we handle this and how do we rectify this so yeah what about you elias i have complicated feelings about this i thought you did because while it is a very good introduction to you know just x-men in general if you're going to start anywhere and you start here you're not going to be lost and confused or, or even robbed of a bat, of a good story. Because this is a very good story, and I wanted to see Ord get his teeth knocked out the <laughs> mm-hmm. whole time. And the, the whole mutant cure thing raises so many interesting questions, and they actually address those questions and try to, you know, suss them out. And it's clear that it's only just getting started. But I kind of hate every single person in this first arc, and I don't want to watch any of them. <laughs> uh... Like, I don't know what it is specifically, but all of the sniping between the characters and and the stuff that's supposed to be quips that just come off as mean-spirited, I just, I I did not like that. And I think if I was not reading it for here, well, I I wouldn't give up because I'm a completionist and I read even crappy stuff all the way through. But... (laughs) (laughs) I, um... You're, you're right, like, I noticed that, and you pointed, you texted me that early in the run that you found them pretty mean, and so I was picking up on that more than I might have on my own. But I think yeah. you're also, um, you're underselling, there's a lot of warmth that I really like, especially at the very beginning between Cyclops and Kitty. It's just, it's clear that uh, she always looked at him as a mentor, and he's working really hard to make their relationship, like, more of a, a, a friendship between peers. Mm-hmm. And uh, despite the fact that Wolverine comes out swinging and the first thing he does is fight with Cyclops, pretty soon after that they settle into a rhythm. It's They're like brothers who love each other but don't really have a lot in common, is the, what it reminds me of. Mm-hmm. We're like, um, I think it's, it might be in the next arc, but when uh, Cyclops blows the Sentinel away with a huge optic blast and then Wolverine is just a Cyclops, something, it's times like this I remember why you're in charge. He, just uh, mm-hmm. showing him respect and um, and how there's a part in this where uh, Cyclops gives everybody orders and he's like, okay, Kitty, you're going to go hack the mainframe and Beast, you're going to go into the lab and Emma, you're going to go start interviewing people. And then Wolverine says, what do I do? And he, Cy- Cyclops just says, have a beer, don't get in trouble, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and that was such a thing that you just, it was so clear that they understand each other and uh, they understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. And even though they, uh, some of the barbs are pretty mean spirited. And I think you're also specifically talking about between Emma and Kitty. Yeah. I did not understand their antagonism partially because I did not understand the, as aforementioned Genosha. Uh, and there's a whole thing there that I, 
I really have no context for. I just kind of know that Kitty really hates Emma at the beginning of this, and by the end there is begrudging respect, if not bordering on real friendship, which has changed in yeah. this new era to an actual friendship. Yeah. I mean, so. she spells it out. I'm, I'm looking for the exact quote, but she says to Emma, she says, the very first day I was part of the X-Men, the day we I, I met them, uh, you kidnapped me. And you were the very first villain I fought. So when I think of the concept of evil, yours is the face I picture. She says, and that's uh, that's true. Uh, Kitty joins right before the Dark Phoenix saga, and uh, Emma is the early antagonist in that story. Yeah. Um. So it, that's the the root of it. But that doesn't mean you have to tonally like it. But I think uh, the story does a pretty good job of uh, justifying. Oh yeah, it it does a good job of justifying the antagonism. I I think I don't like the way Whedon writes it. Yeah, some of it's, it's... kind of smug. Yeah, smug, and yeah. it, it sometimes comes across as false, not in that the rage and, and the anger isn't there, but in the way it plays out. It's like, we just need them to be angry and, and tense with each other. Uh, and and favoring the quippy one-liner over like deeper, meaningful, lengthier conversation, which, if you're trying to keep things moving, it works. And he still does get a lot of the, the you know, good emotional points although i think cassidy does a lot more of the heavy lifting there yeah and it's it's stuff with shadows and um and framing like uh, cassidy does a bunch of wonderful stuff beyond just uh expressions and body language oh yeah i absolutely love the frame it the that's what sold the first issue like so much of the framing is you feel nostalgic, even if you have no idea what you're nostalgic for. You feel kind of the embarrassment of Kitty arriving late, and you understand, you know, who these people are and why they want what they want. And also sentinels breaking through the roof that turn out to be fake. Hell of an image, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. What you know what else? Start? You know what else Cassidy makes work so well, and I think this goes underrated? The phasing? Um, I Lots of people I've seen draw good phasing before, but... So a lot of this comic owes a lot of its aesthetic to those early 2000s X-Men movies, which I think are kind of crummy movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's parts about them that like I like in the movies, but I think are bad adaptations. Like, Professor X usually is pretty sketchy in the comics, even from the early... There's very few comics where Professor X is uh, morally pure. Mm-hmm. But Patrick Stewart is such a warm presence. I mean, yeah, it's hard for him to be anything other than... <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not. It's how he's written too. He's written to be so. He's so. He's so moral and he's so fatherly in those, which is great. It's a great performance, but um, doesn't seem very X Men-y to me. But what Cassidy does so well in this is the the there's the mansion right, and the mansion looks like a it's autumnal and I don't know architectural styles, but it's like a it, it looks like a, a, a northern Westchester mansion. And I grew up in northern Westchester, so I know from northern Westchester, <laughs> but. When they go down into the danger room, into, like, the secret X-Men bases and the sub-basement, everything is, like, all chrome and shiny, and Cerebro looks exactly like it does in the movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, it doesn't just look like blank hallways. Like, those gleaming, sterile hallways, like, really look like a place. And I feel like Cassidy really captures that this is a real um, hallway, and that, like, it's cool that it's all made out of, like, glistening silver. Anyone else writing this, it would have, I think, or drawing this, it would have fallen really flat. So it would have looked like Chung's sudden doors. Yeah, exactly. And just like, a, it's because, and also we got to give credit to uh, Laura Martin for the color work, but like the reflections and um, sure. the the weird circular doors with the big X's on them. Yeah. 
it really has like such a tactile sense of place that I feel like uh, a lesser artist would not have been able to capture, considering how visually ugly it is when you describe it in a script. It's <laughs> a good point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Cassidy, really Cassidy. freaking good. Like one of. I have best. to get this out before I forget, but Do it. Laura Martin really likes this garish bright red and it's used throughout the run and it's usually like a symbol used as a symbol of like danger or whatnot Mm -hmm. but it hurts my eyes every time i see it in a good way or a bad way in a bad way i don't (laughs) like i don't like seeing this red it's everywhere It's, it's often in these huge blocks on a screen behind characters and it's it's ugly or it's what? used as like like over like a filter over other characters. Well, it has a lot to do with uh, it's like symbolic of Cyclops a lot when you're seeing things through his vision or if you're trying to get into his emotional state. Yeah, sure. Or, um, or other it, it, like cyborg. I, I notice it happens a lot, like when they're in the the jets. Yeah. Um, which kind of you know I feel like that was also maybe like a an aesthetic choice of like film at the time where it was like anytime you had a or like usually there are times where like when you have a scene set in like a military you know vehicle or something they'll hit the button and then like the red <laughs> lights will just start blaring all over the place before they like jump out of the back of the plane or whatever yeah um which i i felt like sometimes i i i liked it when it was when it was like showcasing cyclops's power specifically because boy, mm-hmm. the red in that case made you feel the hurt yeah. of of that um, of that blast. Sometimes when it was just like over the entire panel, I could definitely see where you're coming from. Where it's just like not necessarily the most pleasant thing to engage with, yeah, uh, visually. Um, but yeah, uh, when when it was associated with like a power set, I thought the, that the red was pretty. So. Yeah. I, I mean, respect. I'm flipping through it, though, and I love it. I, there's also, um, if you flip through it really fast, there's splashes of yellow when there's a it's framing an action scene, or there's flashes of blue. I'm thinking specifically of that Nick Fury scene early on, and then later, I think on, on Break World. There's, there's at least one scene on every in every volume that has just this rectangle of red. Yeah, I'm looking at the Nick Fury one. The Nick Fury one is maybe one of the weaker ones because it's kind of washing out uh, Cassidy's art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But such is how it goes. And I'm also – I something so funny with coloring is I feel like coloring is so era-specific and um, – it ages. I think coloring ages faster than a lot of other aspects of comics. I go back and I read the 80s and 90s comics that I grew up with now and um, like, like Vertigo stuff like Sandman. Mm-hmm. And like the pinks and the yellows in those Sandman comics make me nauseous now, and I used to love that. I used to I, think that was I so still cool. Love that. Yeah, I I think it's just like what you grew up with. Uh, you get really acclimated to certain uh, color styles, and so early two thousands when I'm getting back into comics, and it, the, and this is I, like Joe was saying at the at the top, I was reading all the Ultimate stuff when it was coming out then, and this the the color work here really reminds me of that. I bet Laura Martin did a bunch of those actually. Probably. There's just um. So this is the first arc. Um, we talked a bunch about Cyclops, Kitty, Emma. We talked a little bit about Wolverine and a little bit about Beast. But um, Colossus. Yeah. He comes back from the dead here. So one thing that's interesting is I've read the issue where Colossus dies. I actually read it rather recently for the first time, like a year ago. But I'm assuming neither of you guys have read that. I had no I had idea not. he was dead. So what did uh, did his return have any meaning to you? Uh, absence the context of that. Joe, you go first. You know, um, I feel like. 
the thing that I was most aware of with Colossus, and I don't even necessarily know how I was aware of this, was his relationship with Kitty. Um, and so, w- w- once again, there's a lot of red going on here. Uh, um, yep. But like, I I'll 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 I'll, I'll be honest. I love me a, a big Chungus, and so a big Chungus metal boy. I was just like, this guy looks pretty cool if you ask me um and so that cover of of him just kind of like standing there like a scary metal terminator like when i read for the first time i was like this is a kind of character that that i like um so yeah i i like not knowing anything necessarily he just kind of uh was a character especially in college that i was incredibly drawn to which was punch good (laughs) um but uh on upon this reading I, I enjoyed watching his character kind of like develop. There's a there's moments throughout the arc where he like tries to make jokes and isn't necessarily successful at it. One of the things that sometimes confused me is that sometimes his English was a little more broken in parts than in other parts of it. And it was something I didn't necessarily notice the first time I read, but this time I was like, Hey, your your syntax is actually much better right here than two pages from now. <laughs> pete what's going on there bud but um yeah i mean uh like he's he's always been a character that i he's one of those characters that is instantly recognizable to me especially when he's in his silver form um which is especially at a certain era before i was into comics like that was always something that kind of like i want to learn more about that guy as i would see his you know image on a comic as i walked past them so how about you elias i have forgotten the question Oh, well, the original question was just uh, how Colossus struck you, especially given that um, so much of his story in this is coming back from the dead and what that means to people, but you guys were absent the context of him dying. So, like, uh, the story's got to do a lot of heavy lifting to sell you on those emotional beats. So I didn't really care that Colossus was back. I was like, oh, cool, big metal man. He he back, and as Joe just said, he punched good. <laughs> But, uh, like, true. that was the extent of which I cared uh, about Colossus. I've also never really found him to be a very interesting character. Well, that's uh, just me. Not that he uh, is not an interesting character. I just have not found him to be interesting. Ready for me to surprise you, Elias? Uh, yes. Um, Colossus is one of my least favorite of the core X-Men. Wow. I don't like Colossus. I am shocked. Yeah, because you know I go hard for classic X Men stuff, but um, yeah, and also you like the the Colossus Kitty pairing. No, I do not like the Colossus Kitty. Oh, pairing. Oh, you don't. I mean, oh, I, I could have sworn that I thought I, you. I like well, you, I. It's not unreasonable to be confused because I I like a lot of the ways they're written in this book. I think um, ah. I think he kind of within if you ignored the rest of the X Men saga, if you're just reading this book, I feel like the romance reads pretty good. If you pretend that Kitty didn't age with reality whereas colossus stayed perpetually the same um well, and their I think relationship ju- has stayed perpetually the same then it's um <laughs> i mean i'll tell you my biggest problem is that my number one ship for kitty pride is colossus's sister and so um i don't know who I, that is yeah so which we'll talk about it when we talk about uh contemporary x-men next time i'll tell you what because i right. don't know i guess you're not caught up on marauders because i am caught up on marauders i just have no idea who Colossus's sister is. Oh, Colossus's sister is magic. Oh, it's magic. Oh, yes. Okay. They're both yes. scary in Russian. Um. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't really care about Colossus's return, but Cassidy absolutely sold that moment of both yeah. the return for the team and the return for Kitty, just being like, "I can't believe he's back." 
Like, I didn't need to know anything. I just know, oh, clearly this is an important moment. Something had happened to Colossus and he hadn't been around. And him being back is this huge deal. Well, I think especially, too, though, the way that it's presented that he phases through her. And yeah. and it's he is in such rage mode at this point that it's just like, you know, I think there's a moment where she's even concerned if it's actually him or if it's like a clone or something do. else. But Oh, I mean, obviously, right? Because he died. But, and also just the fact that he seems to be, in his presentation, like, almost this, like, uncontrollable rage machine. Yeah. Uh, But then for him to, like, break it and fall to his knees and just be like, Katya, and start, like, you know, crying and stuff, it's like... But, like you said, that presentation is, is he's so... I mean, he's just so intimidating right out the gate that I was like, ooh, gosh. That's actually spoilers for, you know, a 30-year-old comic, but... um. That, that's actually the end of their story in um, Age of Apocalypse is Colossus is charging at the bad guys and he figures that Kitty knows him so well that she'll know when to phase, but she doesn't and he tramples her to death. Oh, that's that's horrifying. Age of Apocalypse. Whoa! Yeah, so I, 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 I don't know how well-versed Whedon was in comics that would have been 10 years old at that point, but maybe that was a, a reference to that. Also, uh, in the issue where Colossus dies, the B story is one of my favorite B stories ever, which is just Wolverine and Gambit are playing one-on-one basketball. <laughs> and then the that plot ends with uh, Professor X comes out of nowhere and just, like, dunks a sick ball. And they're just like, what? How did Professor X do that? He's in a wheelchair. And it turns out that they've been missing all their shots because Professor X has been messing with their minds. And then he's like, it turns out I win in the theater of the mind, gentlemen. <laughs> Professor Xavier is a jerk. Nah, that's a baller move. I'm super into that. Literally a baller move. A basketballer move. Boo. <laughs> All right. Oh, guys, I'm so sorry. I have to leave the podcast forever. <laughs> I, I just got abolished. Um, okay, a couple other characters I just want to uh, touch upon for a beat. Mm-hmm. So one of the sillier elements of like X-Men as a whole is a pretty major character in this run, and that is Lockheed the Space Dragon. Yeah, uh, I know Lockheed from Marauders, probably the best. He's he's a, he's a dragon. Um, he make fire good. <laughs> I mean, I I think that the thing about the thing about Lockheed is, uh, his importance kind of advances going forward in the story. Uh, so I think in this beginning point, it's just you know, um, hey, he's he's cute and he's a little dragon, but um. Can can I, can we say spoilers from later in the in the yeah, 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 yeah. run? Just like I love the fact that he was like the mole for sword, uh, and um, the fact that um, have you guys watched Futurama a little bit at all with you <laughs> uh, sometimes? Okay, fair, fair enough. Uh, so there's like a character um, who is introduced as kind of like a dumb pet character, and then you find out that he is like a soup, like he's from a race of hyper intelligent beings, but they know that they're cute, so they just like pose as cute aliens pets okay. on different planets to keep tabs on things. So I loved the the joke later in the run too, where where uh, Brand is like. He speaks like eight languages. He's actually incredibly intelligent, and here you are treating him as like a fat, adorable dragon. I'm like, yeah, but he is also a kind of a fat, adorable dragon, and he seems to like it a lot. So I uh, respect to to Lockheed for taking advantage of the situation and getting snacks and stuff. But I just I love his connection with Kitty. So this comic was actually my um my introduction to Lockheed. I did not know there was a purple space dragon who was part of the X Men until this comic, and then I've since gone back and read a bunch of the older stuff. Purple space okay. dragon. 
I guess I guess well, I find it striking because I think Lockheed is one of the silliest elements of all of X Men, and so you come out really strong. And like once you can buy into Lockheed, you can pretty much buy it. just like anything he throws at you. You're like, yeah, all right, I can, they can go into space and they can uh, uh, fight like sentient rooms come to life. Yeah, why not? Fair enough. They get, yeah. they get to fight whatever the hell a sentinel is. I guess that's just a big ass robot. Yeah, just a big ass robot, and they're made by mother they're, molds, which are bigger robot. ass robots, which are made by master molds, which are the biggest ass robots. Aren't there bigger, bigger, bigger ass robots now? Yeah, I they, feel um, like I feel like Hickman's like, and then there are galaxy brains, and we're all like, all right, Hickman, thanks. Uh, well, if we ever talk about other Hickman books, we'll get into those galaxy brains. Oh. Um. <laughs> Um, there's two other characters who um, Whedon created who are introduced in this run, and I just want to stop and talk about one of them before we uh, move forward to the next story. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that is, uh, this comic is actually the origin point for the character Abigail Brand, this is her first appearance, and the entire concept of Swords, the Sentient World's Observation and Response Division. Did I get that right? I think I got that right. I think so. There's also a great joke about how much the government loves their dumb acronyms, <laughs> which I found very fun. <laughs> this is before they really got out. Because then they, they, later there's armor, which is the uh, alternate reality something, something, something. And then hammer. Yeah, and then hammer, which never stands for anything. Hammer. They just want it to stand for something. But it's like, hammer, is that a thing? <laughs> and then they never think of anything. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I just, I love it. Uh, I, I, Abigail Brands, uh, I did not know that she was a, a Whedon creation until I read it this time and I was I was talking to you about it. Um, I, but I mean, I guess in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense because she really does seem to fall into a lot of Whedon-y things. Uh, you know, she's like, she's uh, kind of the, you know, no-nonsense authority figure, but like she'll crack a joke every now and then and then people will be like raising an eyebrow. She's like, yes, I can be funny sometimes, damn it. And then walk off all mad. Um, very, um, oh goodness, what was that character's name from Firefly? Like the Zoe, kind of. Uh, Although she was a little funnier initially. Yeah, Zoe, the Gina Torres' character? Yeah. Yeah, Zoe. I don't know, she felt very of a of akin with like Zoe to me. Well, like comically stoic and everyone's always kind of ragging on her for it? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I mean, once again, let's let's just talk about like way to set yourself apart. Got to have that cool green hair. Got to have those sunglasses you never take off. Respect. So it's all about branding, baby. <laughs> now, now you're abolished and kicked off the podcast. <laughs> if Elias makes a bad pun, then the three of us are abolished together, and we can reform the podcast. <laughs> we'll have to uh, we'll have to declare Chapter Eleven bankruptcy or whatever, and then. Oh no! <laughs> I don't even know what that means. The first, the first guess was the last <laughs> guess. <laughs> we, this was uh, dangerous. <laughs> um, I, my affection for Abigail Brand comes from. Um, uh, so the the writer who picks up, he doesn't pick up immediately after this uh, this run ends, but a couple years after, um, who starts bringing a lot of these characters back into the mix is Karen Gillan. Who, if you've Talk listened to past episodes of this podcast or talked to me for more than ten minutes, you know is my favorite. Wait, Jake, do you like Kieran? Gillen? I'm a fan of the works of Kieran Gillen. I never, I never <laughs> knew this about you. Um, oh my god, it's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but Kieran Gillen, the, I think one of the first, if not the first mini. No, the first thing he did for Marvel was Thor, but then the second thing he did for Marvel was a mini series that was called uh, Sword, 
and it was about Beast and Abigail Brand, and it picks up after this comic. I should read that. Um, Beast looks like the, the the camel from Camel Cigarettes in that. The art is very <coughs> weird, um, but it's fun and oh, funny. And he doesn't hear. My least favorite Beast. What See, Camel I Cigarette really, Beast? I, I like I like furry cat beast. Yeah, I I'm I I've only seen images of camel beast, and I'm just like I reject this beast. To be clear, this is not my beast. He wasn't supposed to be a camel. This wasn't explained in the story. Just whoever was the artist of that, um, just thought that that was a cool way to drum. It was it was similar to me. Uh, recently, I read um, Jason Aaron run of um, Hulk. I read it late last year, and there's like one or two uh, one or two issues where Hulk is like very smooth, and that really freaked me <laughs> out. Like his head was just like a cue ball, and I was like, "What is going on here?" Oh my god, I just saw it. What? What smooth Hulk? Did you look up the smooth Hulk? No, you looked well, up Camel I, Beast. No, Camel Beast. This is not. Oh, yeah, no. This is not what I was picturing, and it, it is. It is terrifying. Was that a good description? Do you yeah. think he looks like a camel? <sighs> I would have gone with horse face. Um, Stephen Sanders uh, is the accredited artist, and Jamie McKelvey apparently did interiors, which is insane. Maybe he did the covers. <sighs> All right. Well, I do want to say I, I I really like the beast that shows up here. The design on the cover, or in Astonishing by Cassidy. In, in Astonishing, and something that. With Cassidy, this, even though I, I have read one issue of Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly's New X-Men, I think it was the first one, I got it free on Comixology. And I was like, why does Beast look like this? I like it, but why does he look like this? And I got echoes of that here, which is obviously on purpose because of the whole devolution plotline. I don't, I don't, I don't care about that. I thought that was stupid. Yeah, no, nah, I don't much like that either. Uh, so we won't. I don't want to talk about that. But Cassidy's art feels like he's homaging quietly, even though it's completely within his own style, which I really love. Well, at this point, quietly was one of the few artists who had drawn Beast uh, in that cat form, so uh, he's one of the only well, like, references. All the characters, even even like Scott Summers later when he's in his coma, I was oh, like, yeah. that's a Frank Quietly panel. Yeah, you're right. It does almost directly reference it. The other place where Brand shows up uh, significantly is in Gillen's Marvel Swan Song, although now he's coming back. Uh, but in what he thought was going to be his last Marvel superhero book, um, it was called Siege, and it was part of Secret Wars. And it was about, like, this— oh, Siege. Yeah, you remember this book? And it was, like— yeah. um, it took place on the wall outside, like the the zombie lands, and mm-hmm. it was like a it was based on the night, or I don't know if it was based on, but seemed very inspired by the Night's Watch from um, Game of Thrones. And Abigail Brand oh, totally is like, really yeah. yeah, which is great. Like, give me a superhero Night's Watch that rules. And Abigail Brand is the uh, the commander of that version of the Night's Watch because she's Karen Gillan's favorite Marvel character, apparently. That's fun. I remember she showed up in um, AVX, and yeah, right. Um... <laughs> Uh, I th- I think it was she like betrayed the Avengers and she was like I've been a mutant the whole time and then like flew off in a jetpack or whatever. That sounds what? like a... I might be mis I might be misremembering. That sounds like this. something she would do though. But Abigail Band's great. Yeah, I and That's uh, my she's contribution. well, and she shows up. She's the um a major supporting character in most modern Captain Marvel comics now. Oh yeah. Yeah. She often. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. She's often Carol's number two. Yeah, because Carol's now in charge of Sword. Although it's not called Sword anymore. They change, when did they change the acronym? Oh, it's just called Alpha Flight now. No, that's, you can't make an acronym out of that, Carol. Um, Step into my office, Carol. 
Wow. We need an acronym now. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot. Carol did not consult with you because you love the acronyms. I love I love acronyms and I love silly costumes. See, their acronym is Those are. <laughs> if they're alpha plates? That, that, oh. that way you can say we're going to AF and it can just be we're going to as fuck. Oh, that's true. We're we're going to clean up the universe AF. <laughs> There we, there we go. go. That's there we, yeah, there we go. Elias did it. There's He's an actual too. joke there. <laughs> um, Elias is the Abigail brand of our crew. Okay, that's good. Um, we all need one. No, it's fun <laughs> that they're called Alpha Flights. green now. Yes, you do have to dye your hair green. That's a great idea, and I'm glad oh. I suggested it. Um, <laughs> it's fun that they're called Alpha Flight because when they fight the Hulk, they turn into Gamma Flight, and that always delights me. It's true. That's actually where my current favorite superhero is residing. Puck! Yeah, Puck is such uh, a joke character. We should probably get back to X-Men before we're here for three hours. Yeah, let's hours. do it. Puck, for, uh, Puck, watch. Uh, Puck first appeared in X-Men. But uh, regardless, so the next arc is called Dangerous. And actually, the opening yes. issue of Dangerous is one of my favorite issues of the entire run. And that's when the X-Men um, encountered the Fantastic Four while they're fighting a giant beast in Manhattan. See, I didn't yeah. like that. You didn't like this? Well, I didn't. I didn't like the way the Fantastic Four talked. I have a lot of problems with the way Whedon makes characters talk throughout. I just I just don't like it. And I didn't like the way he made the thing talk. I didn't like the way he made any of anyone else talk. I mean, Reed Richards always sounds like an ass, so that was no no difference. So it was interesting. I was talking to to Jake about this as as we were reading it. Um and and the thing I thought was really interesting about the Fantastic Four in this um is I feel like it does a good job of establishing where superheroes fit into like society in general because I think there's a line at one point where Sue like says something that could be construed as like you know a little like anti-mutant and then there's like a beat she goes not that there's anything wrong with that of course um and it felt very like of this era of you know like i support x you know community here dot but like or like you know saying something and then immediately like backing up your your prejudice yeah where it made it really interesting because it's like here's the first family of marvel who have these weird powers but you know they got them in a an accident in space and even they're like kind of looking at these at, at mutants suspiciously and so i thought it was an interesting way of establishing especially because like i mean the fantastic four are they still like pretty beloved public icons at this point in I mean, marvel has but, it does that ever go yeah, away Yeah, that goes away sometimes but that's kind of like uh if it's changed it always the status quo will revert by the end of the story we're like oh the fantastic four are renegades and they're being hunted by the government but then they clear their name yeah i think it's i mean i think it's just such an interesting parallel because you have like the first family of Marvel and and people who explore spaces and dimensions and even they're like, I don't know about these mutants, but like not not you personally, but I don't know about these mutants. So I, I thought that was really interesting that the way the way that they were established in this. So uh, other superheroes tend to come across as a lot of writers like making other superheroes sound like dicks when they're encountering the X-Men uh, to prove that point you're making about um about how they can appear heroic a lot of the time, but uh, aren't great allies when the time comes for that. And the character who gets yeah. that the worst is always Captain America, because it's always harder to because since Captain America is the moral compass of the Marvel universe, it's often hard to believe that Captain America would be so tone deaf when he's usually so sensitive. Um, yeah. Although I, I like 
I like this on principle, and I'm like, I'm reading these jokes, Elias, and they're cracking me up. Like uh, when um, the thing says, didn't they come up with a cure for your kind? And Wolverine says, you got a problem with mutants? And the thing says, I meant Canadians. Like, I'm chocolate at that. That's funny. Yeah, I think Wolverine gets all the best retorts. <laughs> well, the thing gets the best retort in that case. Well, I guess. But, like, when he first comes onto the scene, I'm like, all right, here's here's boring, boring Ben. Like, we do big monsters. I'm like, why does he care? This no, is that's New York a, City. Uh, that's uh, the thing. Of course, he, he says that's our signature piece because it is their, thing, <laughs> it is their signature piece. They're the Fantastic Four. They always fight the kaiju in New York. Yeah, I feel like the thing specifically would be the one who gets the most uh, upset about monsters specifically. Do you, did you guys ever watch uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes? Yes, yeah, love that cartoon. The, the cartoon where they're playing poker and the thing and the Hulk just start beating <laughs> each other up. Oh my God, they're like little kids in that. Uh, yep. But anyway, back to. Um, back to there's also a sequence I really love in this issue where. Um, there's these amazingly drawn uh, action panels of uh, just Cassidy really crushing it with uh, first it's of Colossus and he's punching up the monster. Then there's a page of Kitty and she's rescuing civilians. And um, and they have this internal monologue about um, all their doubts and their hopes. And um, and then <laughs> and each one ends with um, like, oh, I really got to get my head in the game because they're so distracted by their personal soap opera business because this is X-Men that they're it's impacting their superhero-ing. And then there's just an amazing page of Wolverine just, like, kicking ass and slicing up the monster. And he says nothing for the entire page. And then it just ends with, I really like beer. And yes, that's not only my favorite page of the, the issue. Yeah. Not only is that a great joke, I love that as a statement of because um, at this point, I think Wheaton had a big chip on his shoulder of people uh, accused him of having a big tendency to overwrite. And so he took Wolverine. Wolverine is so... Um, understated for the entire run of the comic wolverine almost never strings more than two sentences together and he, he's not deep he's wolverine it's he's funny the guy with this nice is not an overwritten comic yeah um yeah i think the script is pretty good and he he is smart enough to let cassidy do the lifting sure which um is i the first thing i look for in every comic script but I particularly like how um he's always contrasting wolverine by showing how wolverine his needs are simple and his uh his, uh, you know, his methods are simple. Wolverine's a simple man with simple tastes. Um, it's also it provides a very interesting contrast to the meat of the arc, which is really dark. We go from funny monster antics to probably some of the darkest stuff in in this whole run. Yeah, well, um, so you're referring yeah. to, so the majority of the arc is there's something mysterious going on, but it's quickly revealed that the danger room has been upgraded so many times with advanced alien technology has become sentient and is now attempting to kill the X-Men since it was uh, directed to kill the X-Men. It's programming. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it views professor X as a father figure. And the final showdown, the X-Men aren't able to defeat this ultimate form of the danger room who calls herself. And she is very uh, female coded. Um, calls herself Danger, uh, it's, and it's Professor X who returns for this one story to defeat the Danger Room. And with the with the knowledge too that um, he had, like that Danger had developed and and advanced to the point, and how he had been suppressing that for so long, I was just like, God damn it, Charles! Like, what is you're a monster, you you wheelchair old man? Yeah, he's a uh, uh, yeah. Did I? I, did... I was like. Was were you going anywhere? Because I was gonna say that those first couple pages where we're getting all those nice flashbacks, uh, and it it ends well. 
the second to last one is just the professor Xavier is a jerk. Uh, it's a bit of an understatement now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the, another an X Men comic that would have been coming out right around this time is um, Deadly Genesis. You familiar with that one, Elias? No. That was, um, I believe, that was Ed Brubaker or Matt Fraction. I think it was Brubaker. Um, and that was kind of the that's the classic Professor X is evil comic um where yeah written by ed brubaker um that's the one where uh vulcan is introduced as a character amongst others and it turns out that there was a whole team of x-men who who died on a mission and professor x was so humiliated by this he wiped their memories from everyone who ever knew them including their families because vulcan is cyclops's little brother and that's why cyclops never knew that he had a, a brother besides havoc and um and that was like that was the uh, the oh my god Professor X has gone full supervillain he is irredeemable he's not just like evil in the way that sixties Marvel characters sometimes come across um, where they're just like jerks all the time like really that's a villain scheme that's not a hero scheme yeah and and he's the antagonist of this arc because ultimately he's presented as more evil than danger even though yeah, he, for sure. even though he gets some of the coolest moments. <laughs> What, arc. you like that part where he drives the truck through the wall? I love that <laughs> panel. It's utterly ridiculous. And it gets a silent panel. It's just, it's all Cassidy. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of there are a lot of ridiculous moments like that, and there are a lot of moments that are utterly terrifying. Like the it's like page thirty something, uh, where the, the sentinel come is coming out of the darkness only lit up by Lockheed's fire. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. is oh, terrifying. That's such a good panel. Um I also got a kick out of just in my obscure X stuff. Elixir makes a brief appearance here, who is uh, now a very important character on Krakoa. Uh, he's the golden kid who heals everybody. Oh, okay. I was like, was that gold balls? No, and that, Elixir is another member of the five who do the resurrection. Yeah, so this arc is kind of, I love that Fantastic Four issue. Um, Danger is a really interesting character, actually, and another one who uh, Kieran Gillen picks up the, the reins from. And Danger's showed up uh, here and there. So I find her, like, a compelling as a new character, and we've gotten some cool stories out of it, but this one is not as strong to me as the first. Not nearly. Yeah. 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 I think I think a lot of its strength comes from the pathos created by the death of... Uh, Wing. 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 Who yeah. Has Wing shown up again? Um, I, you know, gun to I my head... Because has. Yeah, uh, Arrow, who is, um... Arrow. She's one of the Guthries. You're thinking of Melody Guthrie has yes. definitely shown up. Uh, there was also Wing, and then there was also Icarus, who's another similar character. And I, gun, I've i definitely seen one or more of them in the background on Krakoa, but gun to my head, I don't know if Wing has shown up necessarily. Well, his his death is... That real was, sad. That was real sad. Real sad, I but he kind of like um didn't... Uh, didn't have the it had a lot more heart than a lot of the the, the rest of the writing it didn't have that smugness it it felt more compassionate no. it it felt earnest and and it was meant to be like compl- it was complete yeah it was completely earnest and you're just like oh oh wow there was it was very malicious not on Whedon's part necessarily but on danger's part like the whole the, the slow movement towards his death and that's yeah. kind of what you're supposed to realize you're like oh this wasn't just an accident this wasn't this was like no jokes this is serious and then sure. Charles Xavier shows up in his tank chair <laughs> well again it looks like the movie though it looks like the Patrick Stewart's wheelchair 
uh, it looks a lot more souped up. Yeah, the wing thing is really sad. This also plays with something that he is going to do to greater effect later in the story, which is a lot of the sequence with wing is an illusion because he's being tricked by holograms. And yeah. uh, and it, that's being um, hidden from you as the reader, and then that's like a big reveal when you realize that the whole issue has been fake. Yeah, and you can kind of figure yeah. it out when you start hearing the his friends start talking, and you're like, that doesn't sound like the character. In a right. obvious, yeah. it doesn't sound like a character. Way. Oh, shit. Yeah. Joe, you go ahead, but that's something we have to talk about. Yes. Our, our armor starts going, like, hard. <laughs> like drilling it to him hard more than like she has up until this point. But I also was interesting to see how those, those things contrasted with the, uh, the kind of quippy like X action moments with the Kaiju. But I, 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 I agree with, with all of, all of that stuff of just that reveal at the end. Cause this was an arc. This was once again, another thing that I remembered from reading it so far, but I forgot that that first uh, whole thing, was a simulation until I hit it and I was like, man, that's what a what a what a good execution that I've read this before and still it still kind of hit me uh as as a bit of a twist. So yeah, that that was something I, I was wanting to say as well as the contrasting of those wing scenes with those X-Men action sequences I thought was pretty well XO. Yeah, well paced. Um Joe, you just mentioned armor uh Hisako and yeah. this is her first appearance. Um Th- this comic? Yeah, this comic is Armor's first appearance. Wow, a lot um, and of firsts here. Yeah, and she's gone on to be a pretty prominent X-Men member after this comic. Yeah. Um, she has more of a role in the story in the fourth arc, the fourth and final, um, mm-hmm. but she's gone on to be one of the like big leaders of her generation of younger mutants who debuted in the early 2000s. Which is always a plus. It's always a plus to have more. Yeah. Give us more... And um, I, I just like, uh, I have a, because of this and because of her other appearances, I have a lot of affection for Armor as a character. I think her power looks visually cool, which is important. It's weird because on paper, Armor is kind of hard to describe. She's pretty stoic. She's pretty, she's pretty understated. Um, she's very serious and, t- and takes being an X-Man very seriously. Mm. But everyone's really managed to um, just give, give that character a lot of heart. Every time she comes up, and she, a lot of writers have written Armor at this point, she... She just never fails to feel like uh, she passionately believes in the mission of the X-Men, and um, I really love her, and I'm grateful that she was created. I'm grateful she survived the arc. Yeah. Oh, also, weird thing, um, I just I was noticing in this comic, her powers are her armor powers are colored greenish-blue the whole time. Mm-hmm. They have exclusively been red in every comic that she's appeared in after Astonishing. But doesn't it change color based on how strong it is? based on her emotions and it changes to red later in the comic uh maybe she um now it changes like size and shape and she can turn into like a big fucking mecha suit that's and the fight. ultimate goal that's always yeah. the ultimate goal that uh, yeah that's agreed. well it's sad there's <laughs> a whole story where her, there's a whole story where her mom and her brother die and then her powers get like way more powerful oh <laughs> yeah that's comics comics you guys but um yeah i love armor and um we'll talk more about her when we get to the fourth arc i guess and so we yeah. should probably get moving if we're going to keep this under two hours. <laughs> yeah, which yes, um, so for sure. So the next arc is called Torn, and um, I think that this is probably my least favorite story of the four stories. But it has a bunch of just like killer issues and great moments and uh, cool stuff in it. Even though I got I, I got two issues with it uh, from the top. 
Um, I'll talk about everything okay. I like after this. But the one issue number one is this is the one where like icky weed and stuff gets a little bit too hard to ignore. Yeah. I'm specifically talking about there's a sequence where um, Kitty Pride gets mind controlled to have this whole fantasy life where she and Colossus get married and have kids and everything, and just yep. like inflicting this domestic life on Kitty doesn't. I, I like how he characterizes Kitty for the most part, but that just seems. Um, unlike her and i didn't like it and um just and like messing with her emotions in that way was like skeevy in ways that make me uncomfortable yeah and wanted to make her another scarlet witch yeah which was a lot it was just something in the water at marvel in this time (laughs) and then the other part of that being that um the ultimate reveal at the end of this arc is so they fight the hellfire club and it's a weird version of the hellfire club and it's clear from the get-go that things aren't what they seem but it ultimately turns out that like there is no Hellfire Club, and in fact, Emma Frost is just hysterical, I guess? Like, I don't know what he's doing with her, but just Emma Frost uh, feels such guilt that she's gone crazy, and now she's using her powers to make everyone fight imaginary Hellfire Club people. Yeah. Um, And that also just uh, seems like an unnecessary thing to do with Emma in that moment. And I also think that that's, like, a bad twist at the end. Like, them fighting the Hellfire Club is kind of interesting, but then when it turns out that it's just Emma, I think that's, like, a real letdown as a twist, not to mention all the sexism. Yeah. Okay, I have a question. So, okay, this was something I, I've, I've... She didn't meet up with... Um, Cassandra oh Nova? Goodness, what's that character's... Yeah, she did not meet up with Cassandra Nova when they went back to Genosha. That was just her experiencing a whole lot of trauma really quickly, being back at genosha am i reading this correctly am i understanding this correctly i think she's also under the influence of the cassandra like cocoon thing that's in the basement but i mean just at this point it's so convoluted that it's just like badly presented story because it's genuinely pretty confusing i think that she is under the influence and also it's implied that cassandra like left a psychic uh evil plan in her head from their previous encounter i just shrugged and went i don't know yeah yeah i will say this arc has one of my a, a joke that I think about frequently and and possibly one of my favorite jokes in comics. Like I know it's it's easy to put something you read early so high up, but um the the moment between uh Beast and Wolverine when they both kind of regain their composure and Beast gives a very lengthy scientific explanation of how he was able to regain his composure using like a ball of yarn with pheromones and all of this stuff. And then Beast or Wolverine just drank a beer, and that was enough to bring him back. Yeah. Beast uh, says, "Fucking." Beast says, "Synthetic fiber <laughs> laced with pheromones, aerosol, smart drugs, light sequences, like opening a series of doors. Each smell, each sequence. The professor and I worked on it after Nova's first attack. Under hypnosis, I associated my most complex brain functions with these keys." And then Wolverine's like, "Yeah, I get it. I get it. I had a beer." And it's like similar, similar function, really. And I don't know. That's just so funny to me. It's so well presented, so well executed. I, I will say, I love Beast a lot. I, I, I know that he's had a complicated past that I'm learning more about, and he is a uh, not super great going uh, on, on his whole Krakoa thing. But uh, that's an understatement. This Beast, in per- yeah, right. Uh, th- this this Beast in particular is just i don't know it's it's something like i play a lot of role-playing games and he's always a character that i feel like there's always a little teeny tiny core of him somewhere where it's like he 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 is the very erudite guy who can also throw down real good um and yeah um that's it's it's a joke that i think of just so freak so one of my favorite moments 
You, well, that's the thing is, uh, despite me not liking this arc overall, there's like the moment where the beer falls on Wolverine is some of the best Cassidy art in the whole run. You know what I'm talking about, Elias? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the way the, the soft focus uh, shifts between the panels, I've, I've never had seen that done in a comic before, and I don't know if I've seen it since. Um, Maybe, but I don't know. The issue where um, Emma does like a really fucked up sex therapy with Cyclops, I think is really good, actually. Explain. Yes, interesting. Do you know the issue I'm referring to? Where um, it starts off where she says, uh, Scott, I'm wearing your favorite outfit, and she is uh, oh, shape- she's yes. turned into Jean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the entire issue is just like going deep into the psychology of Scott Summers. And I guess I... My first exposure to X-Men as a child was the cartoon in the 90s, which is true, but for a lot of people our age. And Cyclops is the worst in that. He's just got a big stick up his ass. He hates fun. Whenever anyone's having fun, he's just like, Professor said we should go back to the mansion and debrief. And just like, he does his taxes when he's bored, and he works out, and then he like, uh, I don't know, washes dishes. He's just like, is the most boring person in the world. And um, so I had to buy really hard into Cyclops, to like get into him, and that issue makes Cyclops interesting. And it just um, if you didn't get Cyclops, this is explaining that he's not just that simple stick in the mud leader on a Saturday morning cartoon character. He's got a lot of feelings and a whole inner life. And then by the end of this arc, he is awesome. Yeah, yeah. But this, but this puts him out of commission for a good while. Yeah, but I will never forget the uh, the image of him cackling gleefully and just like shooting a gun over and over again which was very shocking <laughs> but like pretty funny yeah i mean i thought that the the her her breakdown of scott was pretty interesting where it's like you you want to be the leader but like the first time anyone ever like stood up to you you lost your position of power referencing um, the uh x-men number i think that's 201 where uh storm takes over as leader and they, uh, they show that and, on the panel yeah, yeah yeah so they show that and the the contrasting of of like you know they make themselves known they can't help it and it's it's uh reed richards and cap and and black bolt um i don't know the whole just her putting on uh the gene uh mind thing just felt very icky to me oh, it's super icky. I did not like it at all i hated it and then when she transforms him into Wolverine, it's like, ugh. Uh, I, I, I felt like I needed to go and take a shower after that moment. Uh, it's super icky, but um, I don't, just like, it's icky in a way that I appreciate. Just like, uh, those people are not healthy. Scott Summers is not okay, and neither is Emma Frost. Those are like two messed up people in a messed up relationship. And I thought it was uh, well realized there in a way where I kind of get how they found each other and how much they mean to each other, which I'll come back to in the next arc. Um, Another thing worth noting is that this comic came out not too many years after a comic that was simply called Origin, but is now marketed as Wolverine Origin, which is not a good comic. Have you guys read that one? Which one? Uh, the I have not, but I've seen the, the movie, movie. Based, is based on that. Yeah, Wolverine Origin, the comic that tells Wolverine's origin story. I have not. I think I read the first issue, maybe. Yeah, wow, it's bad. But this comic actually does something with it that's kind of funny, which is that when Wolverine reverts into his, like, childlike form, that is what he's like at the beginning of that comic, where he's, like, um, living in the manor house in British Columbia in the 1840s, and he's got, like, a weird sense of propriety, and he's scared of uh, getting bit by a moose. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I, on paper, I hate that idea. I don't think Wolverine's origin is interesting. I mean, it is what it is, and it's just, like, part of the character now. But this is one of the few times I liked that somebody referenced his origin story in that interest. Like, this joke is funny, that Wolverine uh, turns into 
like a little kid. I also I also liked how uh, how how scary Beast becomes when he's in his reverted form, uh, which. I, I thought it was really cool when you contrast it against, you know, just like how, how, you know, erudite he usually is in his little suits with his little bow ties and things like that. Like when he, when he goes into that mode, he is, he is truly like pretty terrifying. And I think the art does that well too, because like, you know, his fur kind of like, uh, like uh, bristles in such a way that it makes him almost feel a little bigger than he usually is, which I thought was really cool. Uh, pretty scary. Good so. call. Um, the last thing I have to say about this is also about Cyclops, is just that um, I think depowering Cyclops, which happens temporarily, is a genius move, not only because of what we'll talk about in a second, but by taking away even his powers, which are like meager compared to most of these X-Men, like Cyclops's eye beams or whatever, sure. that forces the story to have to uh, demonstrate why he's like a valuable character. And I think it does a great job. Like, you understand what his leadership qualities are, how his insecurities drive him to uh, try to do his best all the time, how much he cares for everybody and is looking out for them, even though he doesn't like them because he feels so responsible for them. I just, like, I think Cyclops is actually a great character, and I feel really uh, badly served by all the Cyclops media of the 90s and 2000s. Uh, Yes, this is something that happened to me in the fourth arc specifically, but I did send Jake uh, three uh, all-caps, very shouty texts, which is, okay, you got me. I like Cyclops now. Are you happy? Are you not entertained? (laughs) And Jake was quite happy. (laughs) I'm, I'm still not as sold on Cyclops. Not that he's, like, morally good or that I want to be friends with him or to even talk to him at a party or something, but I love reading about him. Like, uh, just, uh, there was an issue that came out this week as we're recording it, written by Jay Edidin, who has a famous affection for the character, and it was like, oh, I would read a Jay Edidin Cyclops uh, ongoing in a heartbeat. Sure, yeah. Same. Really uh, an underrated character because everyone is obsessed with the shallow version of him. But anyway, we should talk about the fourth and final arc, which is called Unstoppable. Elias, since you had less to say about the last one, you want to kind of run us through the broad strokes of this one? Yeah, so all of the threads that have you know failed to have been picked up thus far come back, all the chickens come home to roost, and the X-Men are basically off on another planet to go fight a war against Ord. Uh, not, not fight against Ord, but there's a whole other planets politics to deal with and they are seen as the destroyers one of them is supposed to be the destroyer of their world and was it colossus or cyclops it's colossus colossus and it's the irony that they revived colossus in order to invent the mutant cure and but in doing so yeah (laughs) Yeah. and in order to prevent the planet from getting destroyed but yeah it's like a whole ironic and the only reason that they came is to the planet it's it's a very it's a very oedipal uh, Greek style prophecy where the attempts to prevent the prophecy actually make the prophecy come true. Pretty well done, in my opinion, too. Yeah. I, yeah. I it's a lot of punching, a lot a lot of what's going on and a lot of politics. I didn't really care for the once they were on the planet trying to figure out oh, who who made something up and they planted it in the ground and there's all this foreign uh you know Intrigue and intrigue. I'm just like, all right. Yeah. I don't. I don't need these details. I don't really care. You haven't made me buy into this planet. A lot of like the 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 attempts at at allegory were they just kind of fell flat. 
Yeah, Breakworld itself doesn't interest me that much. Yeah, but the... Yeah, I would agree with that as well. The X-Men stuff on the world was interesting, and... I don't really know. It, it was... I was excited throughout the entire arc, which was very weird. Both of you, you were texting me throughout your reading of this, and Elias, if I, um... Tell me if this sounds right to you, but I was getting the impression... You read the first arc, and, um... You were like, this is not my cup of tea exactly. And then as you kept on going, yeah. I think you were finding, especially stuff in the art that you were really liking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it hadn't clicked with you, and you kind of uh, maybe felt like it was pointless. Like it was just like a bunch of stupid episodes that were a little confusing. But then, and this arc, as those threads and everything that was established so far came together, like all the weird psychological stuff that was uh, discussed in the third arc, the danger stuff in the second arc, and their feelings about the mutant cure and Ord and Sword that was introduced in the first arc, all comes together in a big way, and then it's just like a kick-ass blockbuster of the X-Men being the coolest X-Men ever. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I I totally forgot about this in Torn, but Slug Nova was disgusting. Yeah, I mentioned that in passing. Don't like Slug Nova? She's gross. Nasty. Um, that was, yeah. But no then, good. so we were talking, I think we're concluding a little bit that uh whedon's plot on this is like pretty uh shaky but the um i think that might be the biggest understatement we've had in uh, this well, entire I, except that he brings it together so well at the end here um yeah but but his moments are really strong so, and this this fourth arc also i think has the strongest moments in the whole series like i'm flipping through it and um so many like little unforgettable beats like when they're on the crashing spaceship and um, Emma gives like gives them a little tea party in her head <laughs> to keep them calm. Well, and then to contrast that with the other ship that doesn't have the Emma and you see like the G-forces wrecking their body and then it gets hit. And then Wolverine has to like fly through the sky and has to like basically like get armor to wake up in time to turn her armor on so she doesn't get splatted when they hit the ground. Uh, and then Kitty has to like phase her and Pete through the planet so they don't get splatted. Like that was all very cool. And then to, yes, once again, cut back to, it's just a delightful <laughs> little tea party. And it's like, there's no need for us to be savages. Like, I th- I found that was something that I always thought was was really cool or good in this arc was to contrast between like the you know I to think about it you mentioned blockbuster like I could hear the audience laugh if you were sitting in a movie theater watching that yeah you know you have the music it's going crazy you have like the you know Henry Jackman or Brian Tyler score just like going and then like you know cut. And then it's just, like, playing, like, Muzak, like, elevator music as they're, like, sipping on tea. And it's like, huh, this is quite lovely. Then back to... Um, uh, I thought that was great. So. One thing that I will repeat a hundred times on this podcast is um, I... One of the reasons I like superhero stories is I like watching characters, like, use their powers. And I think a bad influence that Bendis and his ilk had on the genre his is... His ilk. <laughs> Is you could have like a Matt Fraction does Matt Fraction did this like uh, leaned into this so hard it was almost uh, like making fun of it, but just like my my typical Bendis thing is like you'll have a whole issue of the Avengers where all they do is like eat pancakes and just have like interchangeable dialogue with each other and I'm like do they have superpowers and like do they do stuff and this sequence when there's a, a crash landing like I feel like planes are crashing in comics all the time spaceships are crashing all the time but just like everyone using their powers in different ways like Joe is describing to um in the 
in the crash was like exciting and clever. I like I like reading that, and I liked how Wolverine does get splatted. He has to reform, and it's gross. Yeah. Um, and how Armor's inexperience uh, was contrasted with how useful her powers were in this situation because she can turn invincible. And but so Wolverine like had to wake her up and be like, "Yo, kid, we have to not die now." And then she has to armor up at the last. Like all, of, I loved how the character beats and the superpower beats um, d- just dictate this whole sequence of issues. Which brings us to uh, my favorite moment in maybe the comic, which is um, the psychic conversation. Yeah, you know the one I'm talking about. Yes, that was great. The so. The basic premise is we we see this scene play out the first time. I think it's at the end of an issue. And it's Scott and the rest of the X-Men on basically crash landing the ship. And they all blow up and die. The end. Comics yeah. over. They're gone forever. But the, the conversation is, like, weird and doesn't make any sense. Like, people start laughing inappropriately. And at one part, Kitty yells, I object! And it's not clear what she's objecting to. Yeah. And then the next issue... We get the exact same scene, the exact same art, but there's now additional dialogue. Uh, and it's all of the, uh, you know, mind-to-mind stuff. Uh, and it's basically them saying, here's what we're going to do, here's how we're going to do it, and here's how we're going to make sure we get out of this alive and stop save the day. Yeah, well, it, the, it's that uh, they were having, we didn't realize that they were having, like, a secret psychic conversation because they knew they were being listened to. And this is just, like, deeply clever to me and then it all culminates in the revelation that um cyclops has control over his powers again and he gets the blast ord in the face i was i was so charmed when it was revealed when the secret conversation was revealed um i was i i was i I pumped my fist i was so excited (laughs) like once again imagine imagine that i once again imagined it in a movie theater which I can say about this arc specifically is is one that like you could see it like being turned into a movie. Yeah. Well, you almost couldn't because it's like it's you would just have to do panel for panel, page for page, like a straight adaptation because like the the beats and the lines and the story. I just there's no way of adapting it. It's already a perfect version of itself. I mean, fair, but like I guess it was more so like. This is the one like I most imagined like with a score underneath it and sitting, you know, in the theater with the friends watching it and then like watching everyone lose their mind when like 20 minutes later they replay the scene with the psychic conversation and everyone going like, oh, shit, you know, uh, like the end of like the end of or, like when people start coming out of the portals and stuff, just like how excited an audience would get for a moment like that. Especially when they all rag on Kitty for saying I object. <laughs> um, I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention um, around this time is when um, Scott says uh, that he loves Emma for the first time. And um, he's pretty much only been in relationships with Gene and clones of Gene for his entire adult life. So that's like a yeah. Healthy. So that's a pretty big uh, character moment for him. But the next page where um, Emma's holding his unconscious bleeding body and she's crying and she says, uh, he said he loved me. This man, this extraordinary, ordinary man is in love with me. I just like, um, this is the moment that sells me on Ernest Emma, which is something that um, has, there's been a lot of going forward. But uh, this was like the first time I had seen uh, like a vulnerable Emma. And, um, and she's one of my favorite X-Men characters. I think she's in my top five. But th- th- this this page like really sells me on their relationship and Emma as a person with like deep feelings that she's always trying to cover up. Uh, I don't really have much to add to that. It's I think that's a good summation of what makes this the end of Whedon's run work so well. And it's 
where the characters have ended up. Because the journey for me was very rocky, especially in terms of characterization. But the places we leave all these characters is a lot better. And I think part of that was also him. Him. I don't know if he forced the opening so that we he could get to this ending. Or if it was just a natural development of how the characters went from where he thought they were at the beginning. Uh, well, it took him four years to write it, so uh, lots of things. Or are maybe possible. it took Cassidy four years to draw it. Right, more. That's more the case. Beast makes a funny Star Wars reference. He gets to say "That's no moon" in context. <laughs> yep. Made me laugh. Uh, that was. But good. we should talk about the final issue. So right away, the final issue opens on Spider-Man, and John Cassidy is just like drawing Spider-Man in action. And holy shit, you guys, Cassidy should do a Spider-Man comic. Well, if if he if he could if he could. <laughs> yeah, not to be controversial, Can but commit to it. Um, this is also when a lot of the X-Men who we haven't seen yet show up for the first time, notably Nightcrawler, Storm, sure. and Angel. And Iceman. And Iceman and Thunderbird, uh, Cannonball shows up. But in essence, the final issue is that, um, uh, Breakworld has a giant bullet pointed at Earth, and it's, like, not a complicated machine. It's just a huge-ass bullet that's gonna shoot the Earth. And Kitty phases into it, <laughs> and the whole final issue is the X-Men escape from the planet, and then they have to figure out a way to stop the bullet. But they can't, and so there's an amazing page. This is another just, like, incredible art from Cassidy of uh, Kitty phasing the bullet through the whole planet and, uh, for all intents and purposes, sacrificing her life because um, then the bullet keeps on going. They can't stop it, and um, it shoots off into space. And her final words are in exchange with Emma Frost, and they exchange words of begrudging respect. And that's... Yeah. Okay, I have a question yeah. for you guys. Real real quick, not to derail things. So we see a couple of panels of various uh, members of the team, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, things like that, thinking that they were the ones to save the planet. And then it cuts to all of the characters collectively drooling. Is is Was that Emma manipulating them so that they wouldn't destroy the bullets, then kill Kitty? Or... Was that an effect of the bullet? I wasn't entirely clear. Oh, I thought that was all Emma. I thought that was an effect of the bullet. I'm looking for the reference, but at some point they mentioned that the greatest sorcerers of Breakworld have, like, enchanted the bullet. Okay. I'm trying to find... I wasn't 100% clear, and and it could have been either way, and so I could have seen it... I could have seen it as, one, it's Emma trying to buy Kitty more time to figure out a way to get out of it, or... um. Because you know, if the uh, if they were, if worse comes to worse, it's like, well, then like let's just fire all of our nukes at it all at once and just like destroy the bullet or whatever. Um, or it was the greatest sorcerers of all of Breakworld manipulating them and preventing them from doing anything to stop it. I just wasn't entirely clear um, about that, and so that was kind of a big question mark. I have it in my notes. Why? Who? Who caused the drooling? Um, in my notes. Now that who I'm rereading. The drool- I like it better if it's Emma. I hope you're right because that makes her um, her respect for Kitty stronger at the end. That much stronger, yeah. exactly. So that that's how I read it. I read it as, as Emma stopping all of the the heroes to keep them from doing something stupid and completely failing with Kitty in the bullet still. But but so this moment um, this moment between Emma and Kitty did this uh, this redeem the comic a little bit for you, Elias? I don't know if it redeemed the comic, but it definitely redeemed their relationship. <laughs> Well, a lot of uh, later <laughs> comics have uh, could have redeemed their relationship, but within the pages of this, I mean. Yeah, within the pages of this, I think that it it went a long way to help with a lot of the problems I had near the beginning uh, with their characterization, and also helps 
me kind of understand how a little bit more of how they've gotten to this point because i've read avengers versus x-men i've read uh, i read all of the big event comics for uh that episode we did with kevin a while ago and i had no fucking clue how we got to emma and kitty being such good friends and avengers versus x-men is well after this uh yeah, the issue where they finally figure out how to save Kitty is dope. That's the, one of the coolest Gillen issues. So I have no idea what... Oh, yeah, and, and that... I was shocked uh, that Kitty... The, the whole sacrifice, that, that was a really good moment, I think. And I think that was a, a nice... That was, it, this is Kitty's story. It op- the, the, the book opens with Kitty coming back to the X-Men, to the manor, and it ends with her saving the day, saving the entire world, and in a heroic sacrifice and that's kind of her arc it's going from not knowing what she was she's needs to do wants to do, not really wanting to necessarily be back in the hero life to fully embracing it and reconciling with all the messy difficult and oftentimes you know side switching that happens in the superhero world and also a giant fuck you bullet that she faces <laughs> through the entire world Right. Well, and isn't that the, that's the best of superhero comics when um the emotional arc and the superpower arc reflect each other. She does something that she didn't think she could do with her powers because it represents how far she's come as a character in the last four stories. Yeah. And then it's so I think that the uh, most obvious criticism of this comic, which I think is overall very good, but we'll come back to that in a second, is that um it's really a love letter to the Claremont comics in like a big way. And he's playing with a lot of similar beats. A lot of the stories are the types of stories Claremont would have done. But I think what's the strength of it is that if you're not here to read 17 and a half years and hundreds and hundreds of issues of Claremont, you get these 25 issues. That's like a microcosm of some of the most important beats. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Because uh, uh, Claremont's X-Men is about Kitty coming of age. She starts off 13, and she ends it like a shaky but confident 18-year-old or whatever. Then there was like 10 years of character assassination, and then there's this, and she comes uh, she comes of age again, but um, it feels more like she's going from being like uncertain and in her early 20s to um, like embracing her power at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know from my feelings on Marauders... Kitty's a very important character to me. And she's Kate now. <laughs> and respect. She is Kate. She is Captain, Captain Kate. Kate. So, yar. So kind of as a concluding question, you guys, um, if you had never read other comics, would you keep on reading X-Men based on this? Um, I think that this story is such a nicely contained thing that I'm not 100% sure I would. Uh, I think that, no. I think that when I was done reading Astonishing X-Men, I didn't necessarily, or, or rather, I didn't necessarily feel a drive to keep exploring, if that makes sense. Um, whereas now, it's like I'm just kind of, I'm, I've become more interested in X Men as a thing, as a, as a whole kind of unit. Um, because of Hickman and because of the Krakoa stuff. I think. Well, so, so the Hickman stuff, um, I, I sort of was really interested in. And then in that case, I feel like he he does a better job of of giving breadcrumb trails for me to want to learn more. So like pretty early on, uh, someone mentioned Genosha, and I was reading it, and I text I texted you, Jake, and I was like, "What is Genosha?" He's like, "Buckle in, chum," <laughs> and like you gave me this like like you know five paragraph essay basically about the history of Krakoa, and then I was like, "Huh, that's really interesting." And, and then you were like, "You should read. You should consider reading. You know, uh, the Morrison 
X-Men. And then, like, at that point, I was, like, kind of interested enough to start going and jumping around. Whereas with this, I feel like start to finish, it's, like, a solid uh, – it's a solid enough story that has a clear beginning and a clear ending um, that I wouldn't necessarily feel a drive to keep exploring or, or learning more. But that being said, I loved the character moments of this all. And I'm a person who kind of tends to like bigger, better character moments – so I can forgive some things that are, you know, maybe not necessarily the strongest uh, in that case. But, yeah, that's where I'm at with it. So, And Elias, since this was uh, your first non-Hickman X-Men, are, does this make you interested in seeing, like, what else X-Men has to offer out there? I'll be honest, I don't actually know. I finished... That's a good answer. <laughs> I finished reading Astonishing X-Men, and I don't know if I would have continued afterwards. Partially because the whole thing felt like it wrapped up. Like I reached the reached the end. I didn't really feel the desire to need to know more. I was like, this is a good story. Yeah. I could end right here and be satisfied with, you know, the whole thing, even if there were parts that I, I did not like. But for a superhero comic, that's that's rare. You don't get a lot of arcs that or, or runs that really feel self-contained in a way that that are satisfying at the end and that have a clear arc yeah, from the start to the end without a lot of lingering threads that need to be picked up. Like there are lingering threads and there are lingering greater questions, but nothing that I was like, oh, I need to know what what was going to happen to these characters next. Now, I might have kept writing, reading it just to be like, I need to know if Kitty's going to be coming back at some point. Took her many years, like 10 years. Yeah, which is, I find that wild. It was, yeah, it stayed, was wild. I was freaking out. She stayed gone and, and kind of dead for that long. Um, and there is a great uh, Danger gets a miniseries, uh, or is part of a miniseries, with Kavita Rao, the scientist who was introduced in this, and a couple other uh, scientist characters. Mm-hmm. That's a very good miniseries. Um, there's a crazy arc where refugees from Breakworld come to Earth, and they uh, come seeking asylum, and it's about, like, refugees. Um, Sword, obviously, uh, becomes, like, a big deal in the Marvel Universe. There's, yeah, uh, like, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, places you can go after this. But I think what, what you're saying, both of you are saying, is really interesting about how um, superhero, I guess one of the reasons why I like to recommend this book, too, is because it has a conclusion. People who are worried about the thing that Joe was talking about where, like, how do you start when this comic has been going on for 70 years? Like, how can I just start reading it arbitrarily in the middle? This this has a beginning, middle, and an end, so you give it to somebody who's used to that sort of storytelling, and it's easier for them to buy into it than if you just give them, like, a random arc of Scott Snyder Batman or something. I love this one, and um, seeing how much I love it, even with all its flaws, is, like, clear to me where the rose-tinted glasses lie (laughs) it actually was only two years that kitty was missing because remember delays (laughs) i did not remember she came back in 2010 in 2010 yeah i I was working at a comic shop that year wow no i wasn't i was in college that year i don't think it was 2010 uh you're looking at something and i'm not i'll look at this up later but i remember according to wikipedia (laughs) she shows back up in uncanny x-men number 521 which came out in like october 2010 or something God, well, that just shows what a uh, loose commitment I have to the concept of time. I... <laughs> hey, if if this period has proven anything, it's that that's all of us. God, so. yeah. Well, one thing a lot, I've noticed a lot is that we, you and I personally, um, really love uh, comics that came out between like 2000 and like 2015. That's like our sweet spot. And I could keep on finding weird gems from that period. But um, for our next book club book, we are going farther back than that, right? 
Yep, we are. We are going back. Back to the past. Samurai Jack. Style. <laughs> we are going to... I, I Was it 1962? I believe it was. 1962. We are going to be reading the first 14 issues to feature our good friend Peter Parker, the Amazing Spider-Man. So we are going to be reading Amazing Fantasy number 15, which is his first appearance, but not his origin story. And then we've got... Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 1 through 12, and annual number one. And the that annual number one is the uh, first appearance of the Sinister Six, which I think is a great capstone to that first year and a half or so of Spider-Man. Well, once we read it, I'll find out if Amazing Fantasy actually was the origin. Or it, was it was the was origin. Just... I wasn't going to okay. correct you on air, but it was. <laughs> I was like, Amazing Spider-Man number one is the one that doesn't have the origin. Yeah, Amazing Spider-Man number one is the one where um, the communists are trying to sabotage a rocket. And I believe they... Uh... What? Yeah. And, um... Oh, yeah, that is how it's. And I believe <laughs> Stan Lee messes up uh, his name in issue one or two, and he uh, writes it as Peter Palmer. Ooh. I'm excited uh, to find all these. Uh, yeah, lots of weird trivia for those early issues of Spider-Man. But if you've never read it, um, the early Stanley Spider-Man and early Stanley Fantastic Four are two of my favorite series of that era. Which um, they don't read like modern comics, but they are really interesting, and they, they they'll hold your attention a lot better than lots of their contemporaries. And that will be the that, final uh... book club of the year that has gone on for a decade, 2020. I don't like to blame the year. I don't think 2021 is going to be, be a lot shorter or better. No, but it doesn't change the fact that 2020 has felt like a decade. Man, that's a, what a positive note to end the, the episode. Hey, I'm, just cra- <laughs> I'm just cranky X-Men, about everything that's not Spider-Man or X-Men. Comic. If it's a... All right. And um, step 76 profit. Um, yeah, so that's it for Astonishing X-Men. Next time we'll be reading the Spider-Man comics. So if you want to read along with us, that's what we're going to be doing. And it's going to be about a month from when you're listening to this. Right, Joe, where can they find you on the larger interwebs? Oh, man. Uh, I am at, wait a second, <laughs> promotion stuff. Uh, I am on Twitter at Tunabel Grande. Um, and I am on Instagram as uh, The Broom King. Um, but, my, but my Instagram is more... Uh, pictures of the cross stitching that I like to do to occupy my TV habit that I have. So nice. And Jake, where can they find you on those largest of interwebs? Uh, I am a contributor to uh, multiversitycomics.com, which is a pretty great website, uh, as are Joe and Elias. And if you like uh, our vibes and or opinions or just feel supportive, uh, you can totally read stuff that we write there. Uh, One thing that I take a lot of pride in is my mutant diversity column, which is my ongoing uh, study of where the X-Men are at. And so if you... uh, think that I have worthwhile opinions about X-Men, you can keep getting them there. On Twitter, you can find me at rambling underscore moose. Elias, if people were inclined to follow up with you, where would they do so? You could find me tweeting about comics probably once a week on uh, at at Quetzal-ish. That's at Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. The Quetzal stands for pretzel, but really, it's just a little bit messed up there. And I, you can also find me writing at multiversitycomics.com. I do all sorts of weird little projects. I help run the Webcomics Weekly column where we are still doing, or I am still doing a bi-weekly look at uh, Tower of God and comparing the anime to the webtoon, which has been a really interesting experience, especially because the webtoon is over 10 years old. And, oh boy, 
it looks. That sounds rad. Thank you, guys. Yep. We will see you next time. Bye.